guys, and welcome back to another episode of Illuminati, the podcast where we drink beer and talk about conspiracy theories. My name is John. This is Jake. And welcome back. Today we have a pretty fun episode for you. We're talking about car spiracies. Car conspirate cars. Conspira cars. Carnspars. Consparsa cars. Yep. But as always, before we talk about that, let's talk about beer. So, Jake, what are you drinking? I am drinking a very aptly named for this episode, Camaro Crash Helmet, uh, which is, as you would expect, a a bright kind of greenish yellow can with a picture of a uh, looks like a seventy three split grill Camaro there on the bottom and a helmet. And uh, it comes out of Bill's Brewing Company in Wilmington, which I admit I have never heard of before. Yeah, I haven't heard that one either. Yeah. Um, but I I like it. It's not bad. It doesn't have the kind of gooey Imperial IPA feeling that kind of comes in, like the, the ultra kind of get cheap gas station beer feeling you get sometimes from Imperial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very, very grapefruit forward, uh, which I actually, I really like. I drink a lot of, uh, grapefruit seltzer. Okay. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I love that Wegmans grapefruit uh, water. Uh, I'm big on the Harris Teeter grapefruits water. That's okay. my favorite. Okay. Uh, I actually haven't gotten any of the Wegmans, but I'll try that. They're so good. Uh, I'm not a fan of the LaCroix Pamplemousse. Uh, I like the uh, coconut LaCroix. See, I only go for the grapefruit. Really? It's, yeah, I don't like the other flavor. Oh, man. See, I'm nothing or grapefruit. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it's just how I roll. Yeah, because like the Wegmans ones I like. There's a lime one that's good. Yeah. There's a black cherry and vanilla one that's really good. I got my flavor and I stick to it. Damn, you're just stuck. Yeah. Nothing. I actually have have been recently, and it may be a problem. I'm going through probably a 12 pack of seltzer water a day, maybe more. What? On top of the large amount of water I drink normally. Okay. See, I thought I was bad. I drink like maybe two. No. Two or three. I, so I get, I have like gigantic 36 ounce beer mugs. And I okay. fill it full of ice and I take it to my office with two or three cans of seltzer. Okay. Dump them all into it and drink it down pretty quickly and then go back for more cans. That's very, that's surprising. I like, pee a lot. That's good though. It's <laughs> yeah. good for it's good. I mean, my, There's nothing more clear than my urine. I don't pee enough. Probably <laughs> it's I multiple times as you can attest to when I show up here. I'm like, I got to pee because I'm always I, like, God, are you 90? Yeah, I basically feel like a yeah. fucking grandpa, um, but yeah. the Camaro crash helmet <laughs> very grapefruit forward. Yeah, <laughs> and I do really enjoy it. It's uh, it's kind of it's kind of a strong one. Uh, I think it's, I think I saw 8.5. Yeah, it's 8.5%. So it is a little heavy, double dry hopped. Um, but the, uh, I, I like the Bills Brewing Company, which their logo is kind of a Mack truck bulldog looking thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see. Which I'm yeah. a fan of. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, after two sips, you definitely get the back of the mouth, heavy IPA thing going on with this. Right. Um, but, I would definitely try their other beers. Yeah. I mean, I typically find Imperials and like 
double hopped IPAs and stuff to be very like syrupy. It can be a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Not quite syrupy like like a quad is or no, even a triple. No. Like it, it just has this like gooey mouth. There's this thing weirdness going to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I say like I jokingly say like gas station beer feeling, but like like if you've ever had like a steel reserve, there's like this Yeah. Cause you said that and I was like, Colt forty five. Yeah, exactly. You like know. The, like the deep malt liquor beers. Like Edward Forty Hands beers. Yeah, yeah. They have this like back mouth feel that's very syrupy because they're high in alcohol content. Yeah. And sometimes the double IPAs can like drift that way if they don't hide it under a bunch of citrus. They just get a little boozy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, boozy is a good term for it. Yeah. yeah. Very good okay. term. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. So uh, what what is this brightly colored drink you have over there? <laughs> so I tried to go uh, transportation method as well, but <laughs> I couldn't find one as car themed as yours. So what I have is a beer from a local one here in Raleigh, which we have not talked about yet. Yeah. Um, but I've always wanted to like this brewery, but I've never really found their beer that speaks to me so i never I feel the like same way think about them as as yeah. like a brewery that i like it's just one that i know about and have been to a bunch of times um but this is called tricycle prince uh from crank arm brewing which is uh their brewery is in downtown raleigh which yeah. they have a really really great cool spot. spot um and it's called triple berry sour and I'm, a tripled berry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, and like I'm looking at this can and I can't help but think it's like uh, Prince themed because it's very like yeah, I see purple that. and colorful and it has this 80s. like... Yeah, it has this kind of um, like... What's this Prince Purple on it? paisley yeah. kind of print going on on it. And it's got a tiger wearing a crown... Tiger King. Oh my God. I just put that <laughs> together and he's writing. It, it's a purple tiger with a white stripe down his front with black stripes and he's wearing a crown and he's riding on a purple tricycle. And yeah, I mean, honestly, this can is so fun. It is. It, it absolutely is. And if you don't crank arm, obviously bike parts, crank arm is a bicycle theme brewery. Yeah. All their bikes are like, all their bikes, yeah. all their beers are all like bike themed. So there's like, yeah. um, not like fat tire bike themed, but there's like white wall is one or something like that. And then there's like rear spoke or something like, like they all have like goofy yeah. hipster bicycle name stuff. My, my favorite of theirs, which you said you haven't had any that really spoke to you. They, they, there is one that I really enjoy is their rickshaw rye IPA. Okay, yeah, yeah. I have seen that one. And I want to say I've had it, but I haven't like I don't remember it. Yeah, it doesn't it's nothing that like knocks your socks off, but like it yeah. stands out. I, I like rye beers. Um there's uh Yeah. I'm blanking on the name of the company, but there's a there's a I think they're called Hebrew. It's like a Jewish themed brewery. <laughs> and they have a <laughs> amazing like rye double IPA. Um, and I'm, and man, I haven't seen it in years, but like the front of it, it looks like a New York deli kind of thing. And it's like rye IPA. Oh, that's pretty cool. Amazing beer. Just absolutely. It tastes like a piece of rye bread, which I'm a huge fan of rye bread. Um, but the rickshaw rye IPA is, I really enjoy. Okay. Yeah. I, 
I've had to have seen Rickshaw a thousand times yeah. and just have never sure been like, had it. Yeah. that sounds good. I always see it and I'm like, Crank Arm, I know that's a good brewery, but yeah, I can't remember a thing that I like. So their spot's really cool too because they're right next to where they fix the uh, those rolling uh, beer paddle things where you like get a bunch of people together and you pedal. It's like the beer trolleys. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. The yeah. trolley pubs. They repair those directly next door to uh, to Crank Arm. Raleigh Rickshaw used to be back there behind them too. Oh, really? Like next to Videri and the charcoal place and stuff? Yeah. 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 yeah that's where that uh, Raleigh Rickshaw before COVID was the company that maintained all of the rickshaws that would operate downtown. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, oh, I think that's where they fix these things now. They probably took over that spot. Oh, okay. It's like yeah, a big yeah. open garage area. Probably. Um, so yeah, so what this beer is, is it is a triple berry sour, uh, 4.4% ABV. It's a sour. So of course, super low on the IBUs, only 11. And, uh, Oh, now that I'm reading the back of the can, it is in fact Prince themed. Ah, okay. uh, it says he wore a raspberry, ah. blackberry, and blueberry beret. Yep, <laughs> I get it. Uh, Tricycle Prince is our latest sour offering. We start with a tart base beer uh, and then slam it full of raspberry, blackberry, and blueberry. All of the berries because the beer to be a bright... M- Oh, sorry. I can't read. (laughs) (laughs) All of the berries cause the beer to be a bright magenta. Which Uh, it very much is. uh, Absolutely. Very, uh, very brightly colored magenta. Um, This is a sharp fruit salad in a glass. All hail the tricycle prince. Um, I would say... This beer tastes like a blackberry warhead. Absolutely. Like I take a sip of it and it's like I just put a handful (laughs) of if there was such a thing as a blackberry flavored warhead. I'm sure there probably is. Just a handful of blackberry warheads in my mouth. Like I feel like I can taste that powder that they put on them and everything and it hits my mouth and I my face just like squinches up and I get this (laughs) sour like punch to my uh, tonsils yeah. right in the back hits of you right, my yeah. right in the back of my tongue, and yeah, yeah. I mean every every single sip, and then after no, you swallow, yeah, never. There's no chill to it. Like after you after you finish a sip, and then as soon as you get a sip down, and you feel like it's relaxed a little bit, you have this feeling in your mouth like you chewed the fun dip stick, like where it's just this. Like, I didn't realize that until as soon as you just said I put it. it in I, was your like, brain. I was like. I was like, what is going on in my mouth? And you're like, fun dipstick. And I was like, that's it. That's what's happening. It happened. I know. And yeah. now I'm just like, I like want to take another sip because I want to but drink the fun more beer. But I'm just like, do I feel like getting punched in the back of the tongue <laughs> again with a raspberry warhead? Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm enjoying it and hating it all at the same time. You know, you know what, what we, I mean? You know what we need to do? We need to get like gong beers. Where if we don't like the beer, we can gong and then we'll have a secret hidden beer and you have to drink that beer instead. And each person has to bring a different secret hidden beer next time. 
We should probably oh, talk. Man. We'll flesh these rules out. Yeah, we'll flesh it out. Yeah. Maybe that'll be a thing. If you <laughs> follow us on the social medias, Biggest shoot us an email, hit us up on the Instagram, hit us up on Facebook, join our Fancy Pants Super Secret Discord where we hang out and do weird shit. Lots and weird shit. let us know if you have ideas for the show and any beers you want to do, any conspiracies you want to talk about, and some ideas for this weird gong beer thing we just came up with just yeah. right now. And we, we love hearing ideas. The more you have, the merrier. We, we want you to reach out to us, uh, and we want to talk to you about them. Yep. So please do. Yep. I believe in next episode, we are doing a Patreon episode. We are. Yeah. One of, our, episode. one of our patrons reached out and said, you should talk about this, and we are going to talk about it. We are. So stay tuned for that. It's a fucking weird one. So, yeah. That, I mean, that's all I got. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> kind of fell short at the end there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I didn't really know where to go with that. It's all right. We'll put but, it <laughs> uh, Yeah, so that's basically the beer. I haven't really decided whether I like it. I'm on the fence. I like it. I don't like it. I don't know. I, I don't can't know tell. I, like it. I can't tell. I couldn't drink two of them. There's no way. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to struggle, I think. I had, I, had a, I had a beer at pharmacy that they had on tap, and I don't know who made it, but it was a dill pickle beer. That sounds terrible. Dill pickle sour. And imagine exactly what you're drinking now, but instead of the explosion of all the berries and all that stuff, it's dill pickle. It's like the worst parts of a pickleback. Probably, yeah. But you have 16 ounces of it to get through. God, that sounds horrible. <laughs> it's, I, I it kinda, was pretty bad. I kind of threw up in my mouth a little bit. Yeah, it was pretty bad. And and I'm not a fan of pickleback, so it was just kind of a like, hey, pickles, whatever. Yeah, I'm going to do this. No, nope, I'm with you. Yeah, I didn't want to do it. So you want to jump in and continue our car themed? I mean, I feel like everything we do is a little car themed here and there. We talk a lot about cars, but I mean, cars are fun. Cars are fun. I drive several of them. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the things is cars have been with us, obviously, for a long time. And one of the things that has happened throughout that time frame is monopolies have grown, shrank. Uh, big people have been in charge with lots of money and they've done a lot of stuff to kind of slam down and, uh, you know, pacify the little guy and make it worse for him. So, okay. Uh, what we have today to talk about is three big car conspiracies. Ooh. Car spiracies. Con Conspira cars. Conspiracies. So, uh, just I'm going to give a quick intro to each of them. And the uh, the first is uh, the big three, which if you don't know, I'm going to say the big three a lot today. Okay. So just to lay the groundwork for that, the big three are GM, Chrysler, and Ford. Got it. So those are, those are when, you know, post-war, well, actually pre-war, you know, uh, from the 20s on to the 50s, the big three American car makers, those were the guys making all the stuff, making the cars people wanted to drive. Um, so, got it. Number one, the big three killed the Tucker 48. Uh, the Tucker 48, a car made by Preston Tucker uh, in 1948, hence the 48, uh, which was essentially the 1948 version of a Tesla. Uh, it, it wasn't electric powered. It, you know, it obviously didn't have a gigantic iPad in the middle dash, wasn't self-driving, but for where technology was in 1948, this was the equivalent of a 2015 
Ford Taurus versus a 2020 Tesla. You know, this was an advanced vehicle. Okay. In 1948. Okay. So that's uh, number one. Number two was Stanley Meyer, who uh, claimed to have invented an engine that could drive from Los Angeles to New York using only 20 gallons of water and no gasoline. And he built a prototype that was housed in a Volkswagen dune buggy, which I'm a big fan of the dune buggies. Sick. And uh, he claims to have driven it across country and only used 20 gallons of gas or 20 gallons of water doing it. Nice. The third is a little bit more infamous and has a lot more to do with kind of how cities are run nowadays. And it has to do with how General Motors conspired to kill the electric streetcar, not just kind of the subway, but in a lot of cities uh, leading up to the 20s and 30s, there were electric streetcars that, you know, you can find the modern equivalents in San Francisco today. Um, Those were in a lot of cities and they were very popular. Cities loved them because they were cheap and easy uh, and GM straight up murdered them. So, okay, we'll dig into that too. All right. So first up, we're going to dive back into Tucker. Uh, Tucker is, uh, this is a little bit close to my heart because, uh, Tucker had a lot to do with, uh, with Indiana, which is where I'm from. And, uh, he was very involved in the early days of the Indianapolis 500. Uh, he was born originally in Capac, Michigan. Uh, and he loved, this dude loved cars so much, which this sounds like something I would have done in the twenties, but he loved cars so much that he became a cop just so he could drive the forces high powered cars and motorcycles because back then all the fast cars were owned by the police and the feds because up to that point people hadn't started making performance cars because there was no purpose to it there's no reason right and there, i mean the, what that stemmed from why we people, had souping them up from prohibition exactly yeah. yeah so they were moonshiners running from uh from the fbi and cops and stuff yeah that's how we that's how nascar got started because it was uh, beach racing in north carolina yeah big part of it yeah yeah so anyways back before all of that started earlier days uh if you wanted to drive a really fast car really mo- fast motorcycle you basically had to become a cop and tucker was so into cars he went and became a cop wow that's cool yeah, and so uh, as soon as he got a chance, he abandoned the police force because he had another opportunity, and he ended up working on the Ford Motor Company assembly line in the mid-20s, which was, you know, one step after the Model Ts. You know, he's slapping together these things, and, you know, back then, Henry Ford, you know... you can, Assembly line. You can earn a car by working on the assembly line, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he went for it. Uh, 100% and he ended up around that time buying himself a um, a gas station and back then gas stations they used to sell cars at gas stations oh wow I didn't know that and yeah I mean it was just like a regular thing people did and he became such a locally known successful car salesman that he had people trying to recruit him from hundreds of miles away people were like move to Knoxville move just to, to Buffalo, sell cars just to sell cars oh wow because he was apparently this super super charismatic dude Okay. He was just like killer guy. Exactly. Like I was trying to think of a celebrity and for some reason, Robert Pattinson popped in my head and that's not a super charismatic guy in my brain. What? I I don't know why I went there. (laughs) Twilight, the twinkling skin. I don't know. Yeah. I I don't see that one. I don't see it either. I don't know why that happened. So I'm thinking like Chris Pratt. 
Chris Pratt, absolutely, is a very charismatic guy. Chris Ooh, Pratt. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Henry Cavill. Yeah, sure. Han Solo. Henry Harrison Ford. Ford. Harrison Ford. I'm thinking Henry Ford. I'm looking. I'm looking at Henry. Ford. <laughs> Harrison Ford. Um, yeah. All, Indiana Jones. Man, we were just talking Indiana about Jones. him earlier. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all super charismatic guys. So uh, Preston Tucker was, you know, he was working on the assembly line, became a salesman. And then in the early 1930s, 1932, he became completely obsessed with the Indianapolis 500, which I can absolutely empathize with. Because oh, for sure. Growing up, I was so obsessed with the Indianapolis 500. And my family, we used to get together. Indianapolis 500 was a huge holiday for my family. So we would get together and we would get those little uh, race cars that you would get at the dollar store and we would draw numbers on them and we would set them up and bet on who won when like matchbox cars. Yeah, exactly. And so we would have like first person to wreck first person to complete a lap. Oh, that's pretty cool. And yeah, we had all this whole betting. It was my whole family. Like all of us would get together and do it. Oh, wow. All right. And that's cool. Meanwhile, we had moved from in, from Indiana to Florida, and we kept the tradition alive, and it was like a really big deal. So, okay, and we did the same thing for the Brickyard. So, like, we were just super into it. Yeah. So um, over here, we have the Coca Cola Five Hundred. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I'll have to ask my wife to remind me what the name is, but there's actually this really cool, like, um, abandoned short track raceway yes. out in the middle of the woods. I want to go there really badly. Rachel and I have been and we've walked oh. around it. It's fucking cool. Yeah, I've heard it's, it's super really cool. There's cool. a couple old cars abandoned in the woods around it, aren't there? I we didn't, uh, we didn't go into the woods. We just walked oh, okay. to the to the track. It's really cool. Yeah, apparently like deep in the woods around there, there's a couple spots where like older cars were abandoned, like old race cars, like from the like, oh, 30s wow. and 40s. And stuff. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't heard that. That's yeah. cool though. Um, anyway, so he gets totally obsessed and for a month out of the year, 15 days on each side of the Indianapolis 500, he just moves to Indianapolis from Michigan and oh wow, he starts, you know, hobnobbing with people and socializing and networking and jumping in and tearing engines apart and learning how race cars work. Keep in mind, this is like 1932. So race cars were essentially scooter motors. And so like, okay, they're digging into these race cars. He's figuring them out and he really became known as this like well-known loved guy who was there helping people, networking, meeting with the brands, doing cool stuff. And he made a reputation of himself as this superior engine builder. People knew him as a guy who was like doing innovative, cool things. Oh, wow. That's cool too. Yeah. And he wasn't really up to that point starting his own brand or, you know, doing anything kind of super interesting. He was just helping people out. He's like the bagger Vance of the yeah. early thirties, Indianapolis 500. 100%. He just like shows up out of the mist from, yeah. uh, from Michigan works his way into your pit and then stands yep. there and goes, you know what you could do with this engine? 100%. You could do this and you'll get half a horsepower. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's literally what he was doing. No, know? that's fucking nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. So I couldn't he, imagine even like that would not be possible to kind that. of. And the reason why I hate comparing Preston Tucker to Elon Musk, um, but yeah, there's some similarities in the way that he navigates the industry. You know, Elon Musk is a startup guy. He's not a car guy. He doesn't know. Yeah, he was like a techie dude. Yeah, he doesn't know much about cars, but like Preston Tucker knows about cars. So like what he did was he immersed himself in the culture 
and went there and worked with people and helped them out and like made himself known as a guy and everybody fell in love with him because he was the Chris Pratt, not the Robert Pattinson of the time. Yeah. And people like dug his charisma. And so this is going up into the thirties. And then during this whole time, you know, Hitler's making moves and world war two is coming around the corner. And so Tucker comes in and literally builds the, the Batman Tumblr from dark Knight. What? Like straight up is like, this is the new war car. And so I put a picture of it in the, in the notes, if you want to pop it up. So, okay. I'm, I'm opening up to look at it right now. So this thing he built, he called it the Tucker tiger, which is awesome. And it's just a monster of a car. It's got a V 12 with a gigantic gun turret on it. This thing hits a hundred miles an hour and is covered in armor, uh, which at the time, no other vehicles were doing this completely unheard of. Do you see this thing? Yeah. It, What's your first impression? It kind of looks like a mini Cooper a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't, I mean, it looks like something out of Mad Max. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad. Like it's got this I, huge radiator on the front. It's got these white huge walls. white. Yeah. These huge white walls <laughs> with basic like, white wall tires. Yeah. It, I mean, it looks like a kid painted the camo on this thing. Yeah. Like, garbage camo. Oh uh, yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I, I honestly like the black and white picture is so weird. Like I'm, I'm having a hard time even like, yeah, it's, it's a little weird. what I'm yeah. supposed to. And see. this is like the best picture of it out there, obviously, because it's like 1938 okay. or something. 39. Yeah. Now look at the top of that picture and you see the like the big bubble on the top. Yeah. So that was a very special thing that Tucker designed called the Tucker turret. And it was a swiveled uh, gun turret very much in the way that you see now, not nowadays, but you used to see on the like belly of World War II bombers. So, you know, those dudes would spin around like that one Twilight Zone episode where the guy got stuck in the bomber and they couldn't land and they had to do the cartoon tires. You don't see this? No, I was never a Twilight Zone. Right, somebody probably saw this and they know what I'm talking about. Okay. But, but uh, yeah, so, anyways, this turret, somebody would sit in there and you can see there's some armor and there's some visual. But what you don't see is poking up to the rear from your from the photo you're looking at was just like a big ass gun, like poking out of it. Sick. So this was set on like wheels and bearings. I mean, it's a war machine. It better have a big ass gun on it. Right. I mean, what or what else is the point? So this was set on like really well done bearings and like wheel tracks. So it spun very easily, which at the time was kind of innovative. And so Tucker just kind of like threw this together to be like, look what my cool car has on the top. It's a gun that spins, (laughs) you know, but like the army was like, your dad, I built this cool car in my garage, in my bedroom. <laughs> yeah, but the, <laughs> but the Arby's like, bro, this is badass. And like they, they were into it, you know? All right. So they freak out and they're just like, this is cool on your Mini Cooper with white walls and a gigantic radiator. But what if we chunk this onto the bottom of an airplane? Yeah. And put it and put a belt fed machine gun on it. Okay. Okay. And Tucker's like, I mean, I guess so. It's not a car, but whatever. And so, I mean, airplanes are poopy compared right. to cars. I mean, whatever. Yeah, exactly. He's like, "What? You want to fly in the sky? I don't give a shit." And like, so, <laughs> so basically, they they port this thing over to an airplane, and it does really well, and everybody falls in love with him. And then there, people are kind of like pushing him to build an airplane. 
So he builds this like badass fighter plane, which they never ended up building because of like cost and like, you know, just logistics of it never really came to fruition. But if you wanted to look at what an, you know, F-16 fighter would look like if it was designed in 1939, that's what the dude made. Like he kind of made that, you know? And so he was way ahead of the curve on a lot of this stuff. And so, you know, after the war, he comes home. Uh, I mean, not that he was away anywhere. He was just building stuff. But so he comes back home and decides he wants to buckle down and really build this really cool car. And he starts looking at what the big three, big three, want to want to talk about. And he looks at them and they're selling kind of boring cars. You know, if you look at what people are selling nowadays, you know, car tech has kind of plateaued a little bit with passenger sedans and all the car companies are kind of building the same car. They're all putting out all the car colors. You have like white, black, beige, dark blue, and that's all the colors you get in cars anymore. So like where we're at kind of right now with this like stagnation of what cars are, it was a bajillion times worse back in 1945, 46, because all the car companies were pretty kind of fat and happy. Yeah. You had the car that you were going to get and that was that. Like there was nothing else to get. Like you couldn't pick and choose. There was no like I want to get the V8. I want to get the sports model. And they had these things. They had these options. Like you get the sports model or whatever. But all it was was like white wall tires. Like imagine getting the sports model and it's like white wall tires and a smaller rear view mirror. You know, that that's kind of what was happening. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's a little anticlimactic for sure. Yeah. And cars were kind of expensive back then, like for what they were. So after the war, people start coming back and like soldiers that were abroad are coming home with like some fat pockets full of cash that they got from the GI bond and all these different like forms of money. You know, when yeah. you come home from war, you got a bit of cash in your pocket. Sure. And so Tucker looked at this landscape and decided I'm going to build a badass car that people are going to want to buy. And the big three aren't going to stop me. And so what he did was he set out to design his, and this is big air quotes. I mean, actually little air quotes because he actually did it was his car of tomorrow. And so what he designed was called the Tucker torpedo. And uh, right now would be a good time. If you're listening to jump over to Google and look up Tucker torpedo. Uh, The first thing you'll see is uh, one of them was found in a barn about, three months ago and sold in an auction for $3 million. Oh shit. So these, that's pretty cool. When these cars turn up, they're extremely valuable. There's, there's, there's 51 of them and they know where every single one of them is. There's a registry. Um, and they're just amazing cars. It, it was dubbed what they put out in the brochures was they call it an innovative safety car. So kind of the way in the eighties and nineties of how people thought about the Volvo, you know, they thought Volvos were like, if you want to not die in a car accident, you buy a Volvo. Right. They were just safe cars like because sure. they put money in R&D into like crash test ratings and crumple zones and all this stuff. So, yeah. Well, it's like, um, fun fact. I think when the crash test dummy was like first presented as like a, yeah. hey, we should do this as a thing. And I think Volvo was the one who came so, up with yeah. crash test dummy. Somebody was like, this is a huge waste of time. You're going to, you know, bank right. yourselves doing this thing. And then they turn around and have saved what, like 
three million endless, lives, endless lives. Million I mean, lives like something. I don't know with all the crash testing and all that stuff that they, they did. Every day there's a car crash where those innovations have saved people's lives. Yep, every day, hundred um, percent. And if that's one person per day that lives, that's huge. You know, yeah, it's sure. crazy. So, anyways, so in 1948, he dubbed this the safety car, which because of the time, absolutely zero thought was put into safety. These cars were huge. There was no such thing as crumple zones. Yeah, I mean, seatbelts didn't exist. Yep. Um, and the thought process at the time was the thicker the steel is, the more lives it saved. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's not how that works, but I... Right, yeah. Well, I mean, it's post, post-war post era. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, Put that, steel that between was the current thinking. you and the other cars. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that was the current thinking. And so, you know, I mean, they like, they there was no thought even of something like, you know, bulletproof vests. Like, there was no tech thought about, like, how it worked. It just what it was. So... The Tucker 48, the Tucker Torpedo, was just like flat out, no matter how you look at it, was just a cool car. Like even if you look at it today, like if you just put this car aside to other cars today, it was just a cool car. Right off the bat, it was a rear engine, rear wheel drive car like the uh, Toyota MR2, Porsches, classic Beetles, Lamborghinis, Ferraris. Very serious driver's cars tend to be rear engine, rear wheel drive, just how they are. On top of that, it had this really cool, innovative headlight system, which is where it got the term uh, Tucker Torpedo, was the headlights back in 1948 would turn with the steering wheel. So because back in the day, it was very difficult to get streetlights all over the place, unlike nowadays with the damn streetlight outside my window, there's there weren't streetlights on all these side streets. And so when the car is driving down the street and you want to take a corner, the headlights would turn with the wheels and the Tucker 48 sported a third custom headlight in the center of the grill of the grill that would turn more and give more of a view for where it was going. On top of that, for the safety ratings, the car sported uh, the first ever designed body integrated roll bar frame. There was a full roll cage uh, of the car inside of the body of it and there was an even beefier roll bar built on top of the roof which was again completely unheard of at the time because people didn't put money into safety so tucker actually started with the innovation of the roll cages there was a padded dashboard which people didn't do back then which it sounds so silly like you pad your dashboard so you can smash your face into it but right before this dashboards were literally square metal you know, right. I, I don't know if you've ever sat inside of a classic Beetle, but yeah. it's metal. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's the and, same thing as the old Jeeps. I mean, you're hitting yeah. your face on a piece of like sheet the, steel. Those willies? Like, yeah. yeah. And then like when you crash, the steering wheel literally spears you through the chest. Yep, exactly. Because the steering wheel goes in front of the axles, which is... So the old Jeeps and the old Beetles, the steering column would protrude in front of the front axles. And so what would happen is when you get in a front end collision of any kind, the motor would drop down and the collision of what you're hitting would push the steering column, which would act as a spear and drive it directly through your chest. Oh, fuck. Right. That's brutal. Yeah. So Tucker changed the angle and actually set the steering wheel column behind the rear axle. So when any sort of front impact... Wait, behind the... 
front axle? Yeah, the front axle. Okay, okay. Did I say rear? Yeah. Yeah, so behind the front axle of the car. Okay. So when a collision occurred, the steering column would actually collapse behind the axle, and instead of spearing you, it would actually point upwards. It would go away from you. Okay. Because there was no airbags. Smart. So, yeah. So it was it was a So instead of it spearing you to death, you'd <laughs> hit your face on the side of the steering wheel. Pretty much. Yeah. That's <laughs> sick. But it wouldn't pierce your chest through. Uh, okay, nice. okay, yeah. okay. I mean, I, I uh, you know, lose some teeth, maybe an eye. Or it was nineteen forty eight. You know, it was nineteen forty eight. You t- you get what you get. All you right. know? Yeah, yeah. Uh the other cool thing he did was uh he developed uh safety glass, like the way our glass windshields work today so you don't get plate glass blown into your window into your face yeah he basically made it so it would turn into the you know little tiny shattered pieces because of the lamination yeah he did that cool um he also uh made it so the parking brake you would push it in and then there was a separate key on the dash that would lock the parking brake so it would be like having a custom club built if you've ever driven a shit box yeah it's like having a custom club built into your dashboard okay which is a cool safety feature yeah Nobody's gonna walk cool away too. with your car yeah probably the coolest thing at least in my opinion one of the coolest things was the entire um the entire motor and transmission was mounted on its own subframe which was connected to the car by six bolts so you could which sounds scary but you could pull into a dealership and within a few minutes, they could drop your entire engine and transmission out and bolt a new one in. And so what? what right. So what uh, Tucker was envisioning was if your car was having problems, you pull into the dealership, he unbolts your transmission and engine, bolts in a loaner owned by the dealership. Okay fixes yours while it's at the dealership and you're driving around with this other motor. And then when yours is ready, you come back and within 10 minutes unbolts it, swaps it and you move along your way. Oh, wow. And your car's not in the shop for a month. How cool is that? That's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. So the only thing I've ever seen closer to that in my entire life was there used to be it's long ago closed, but in uh, Southern California, in Orange County, there was a mechanic shop that you could take your Volkswagen Beetle to and they would unbolt your motor, bolt in a loaner in an hour, and you could go away with your car and they would fix yours there. And that's the only other time I've seen anything even remotely like that. That sounds like it's really expensive, though, to take an entire yeah, hour swapping in engines. $1,800 or something. Yeah. Yeah. No. You know. No. Who, who knows what Tucker would have charged for this, you know? But yeah. I mean, it's a good idea. The closest thing that I've heard to heard of that's similar to that, um, and it's even it's nowhere close to production. This is like a yeah. totally custom thing. Um, and I can't even remember who it was. I want to say it was like one of the Hoonicorn cars or something like that, but okay. I don't think that that's right. Not well, the Hoonicorn is one of the Hoonigan cars. But the Ken Block, yeah. yeah, yeah. A- a- anyway. 65 Mustang. Yeah. I think it's the truck. The uphill truck that he has. Oh, yeah. yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I've i seen that And truck. don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure that that truck is designed on a completely modular subframe system. Really? So regardless of any portion of the truck getting damaged while racing, 
it's entirely modular in a way where like all you have to do is pull out a couple cool. of pull pins yeah. and like the whole car will come apart into six separate pieces. Cool. And then all they have to do is like pull two pull pins and like the whole back yeah. will come off and they just put two, they just like slide the back back on, stick pull yeah. pins in. I think I saw that one when he was doing Pike's Peak in the in the truck. Yeah. yeah. They like designed this whole like modular suspension system where it's like if one of the coilovers gets fucked up, it's like four pull pins and the whole That's so cool. The whole uh, the whole suspension assembly on that corner comes out. That's amazing. Yeah, like it, it was just, it's like really cool. And it's a whole like uh, Cars modular should be like tube that. Suffer- Yeah, exactly. Phones should be like that. If my Jeep was like that, it'd be so much easier to fix. You would so. probably own that Jeep for the rest of your life. Yeah, but it, it ain't so. Yeah, you know. So come buy it. <laughs> yeah, come buy it. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I mean, like, how amazing would it be to have those modular things? You know. Yeah, like I honestly don't understand why companies can't put. You, you know why? Money. You know why? Okay. We, <laughs> you, you know exactly know. why. Um. <laughs> so yeah. So I mean, I I think that would have been amazing to just like pull into a dealership and they swap motors. It, like it's such a fifties retro futuristic idea. It's like a fifties. It's like jet the Jetsons. Like do, 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 do. Yeah. yeah. It's so cool. It's like fifties like, themed space age. Stuff. What was the, what was the, the woman robot come out? She just Rosie come Rosie come out, swap your motor real quick. You'd yeah. Be on your way. The maid. <laughs> just go, you know? Yeah. Why not? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I just mentioned was stuff that was on his cars that were like ready to go. The first 51 of them. Yeah. And so he started integrating these other things, uh, but he ran out of time. And so these were set for the kind of like Mark II Tuckers. And so here's the stuff he had ready to go for the next generation. Uh, so all, this is the stuff for the Mark IIs. Yeah. Okay. Like, okay. But so this what was we've all talked designed, about, ready to go. Okay. So what we've talked about is Mark One. Yeah. This is now exactly. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, ultra lightweight magnesium wheels, which are still a thing today. Like yeah, you know, lightweight wheels are are huge for cars, especially performance. Yeah. Disc brakes, which in 1948. We were still that was that was ten years before any production car even put them on, and thirty years before they were even standard on anything, you know. Yeah, and he, I mean, there were some like custom race cars in the Indianapolis Five Hundred that used disc brakes. So he was porting over this idea that existed into a passenger car because it was way safer, you know. And his ideas were originally, you know, disc brakes up in the front, drums in the back, just like you know a lot, just like my Corolla. Yeah, I mean even. Cars today have that, like brand new. Well, as I'm saying, the Corolla sitting in my driveway has that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a thing. Like, and he was doing that in 1948 and they were designed before that. So like 46, 47, when he was putting that design together. Yeah. So the other thing was fuel injection, which. What? Yeah. Yeah. Fuel injection. So he had like designed a fuel injection system and was like super excited about it and wanted to get in, but it he didn't have time because he had to get these prototypes out at a certain time to get the funding and get everything going, which we're going to get into in a second. Okay. So then the other thing, self-sealing tubeless tires, which are kind of a thing. Like there's cars nowadays that have self-sealing tires that if you have a blowout, they reseal. Yeah. So it's it was that basically. Oh, wow. Yeah, which 1948. Come on. Um, this is why the NASA super soldiers could absolutely exist because the technology it's always been could there. exist. 
And it's I always mean, been there. I could literally do an hour episode on just how much of a pain in the ass that like tires were in the 30s and 40s. Like, yeah, people people don't realize like, oh, I had to have my tires revulcanized. Like, what? What does that even mean? I don't even. That's know a that thing means. people did. They had to get their tires revulcanized. Oh my god, that's and there were tubes horrible. in a lot of these tires, and it was it was horrible. And, yeah, you know, that sounds terrible. People hate tires today, but we're actually really spoiled with where tires are at. Yeah, steel you know? belt radials. You know, they're it, amazing. Appreciate your steel belt <laughs> radials today, everybody. <laughs> so the other thing was uh, direct drive torque converter transmission, which is essentially okay. endless spool single gear transmissions. Oh, like a CVT. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. All right. And so all right. which was uh, nobody had that at the time. And he had a four wheel drive version of it where it existed in each wheel. So more like independent. Uh, so more like Quattro. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, exactly. Uh, 100%. Like, like all wheel drive. Yep, exactly. Not four wheel drive. Correct. Okay. Did I say for, I meant? Yeah. So all of these things were uh, ideas taken from the, his like race car time back at the Indianapolis 500. This is like a crazy car mad scientist. Like Tesla. He was like the Tesla of cars in 1948, but not Elon Musk. Tesla, Tesla, like okay. Nikolai Tesla, you know, okay. got he it, was, got it. he was doing crazy scientist shit with cars. And so you have to appreciate the motor a little bit too. So the motor was a 589 cubic inch flat six with fuel injection. That's a fucking huge engine. That is a huge engine. That's a huge V6 or My, a huge inline six. Yeah. So no, it's a flat six. So it's like a boxer. Like, like, oh, oh, yeah. oh, I, yeah, that one went right it's over. It's even my head. bigger okay. than you think. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I, in my head, I was like, a straight six. Oh, fuck. Yeah. You're like, oh, no. That's no, like a, a flat six. Yeah. Oh, fuck. All right. All right. So that's a big ass engine. So 589 cubic inch. So compare it just to my charger that's sitting out there is, uh, uh, it's a 5.7. So 350, uh, cubic inch. So it's, it's more than 150. So this is like a seven or eight liter, yeah, flat six, <laughs> eight, eight something, eight point four flat six. Yeah, holy fuck, that's yeah. a big ass, yeah, six cylinder. Yeah, it's massive, and so that's a huge bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so wait, before we get into like the motor stuff, let me talk about like the average motors of that time. So, like okay, in okay. nineteen forty eight, let's just talk about like the most common car sold was the Ford Deluxe in nineteen forty eight. Okay. So this was a 250 cubic inch V8 that made 100 horsepower and 150 pounds of torque uh, at like 60 miles per hour. And that's I think, a tiny V8. Yeah. And I think it a uh, 250. Yeah. I mean, like think about the first Mustangs that had 289s. You know, so it's it's still like a tiny V8. Yeah. You know, and so uh, it would cruise at like. 2800 rpm at you know 50 or something it was somewhere in that range okay so now let's go back to tucker's gargantuan flat six uh this thing had overhead valves operated by oil pressure instead of a camshaft no camshaft this would use what the what what individual oil pressure bursts to operate the valves which is crazy that is insane overhead valves that sounds like a huge failure point Obviously, I mean, probably, yeah, I mean, constantly, yeah, it had to be right. 
And I mean, the camshaft would be a huge improvement over that, like a piece of metal instead of oil pressure. Yeah. This so, is just trying to do some mad scientist shit. Uh, and it worked. I mean, they drive like you can drive them around. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm sure that they drive. I bet they just don't do a hundred thousand miles. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so he used, um, uh, entirely, uh, magnesium pistons with this thing. So picture the size of these pistons and they weighed nothing because they were just magnesium. They it's were like super light. A sledgehammer. <laughs> but it weighed nothing like a, like a weightless sledgehammer. Yeah. Uh, and they used cast steel linings. So th- it was designed to kind of like grind it down. They would like replace it. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's, so it would obviously a lot of work would have to be done for the longevity of these motors. So this is why they put the six pin pull your engine because every six months we got to take your engine apart. <laughs> right, exactly. All right. All right. So this car idled at a hundred RPMs. What? A hundred RPM was the base idle of this car. One zero zero. One zero zero. Yeah. What's your Jeep idle at? Twenty eight hundred. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. It, uh, it's a three point six liter V six. So. 1100. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Maybe 900. Yeah, my Miata is 800. The Charger's a thousand, probably somewhere in there, but like 100 RPMs. Like, I would be so terrified if I turned on one of my cars and they idled at 100 RPMs. I, I just wonder what that would sound like or feel like. Just pop, pop, like popcorn. Like when you're ready to pull the popcorn out of the microwave. That was what those pistons would probably sound like. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. So, anyways. It would cruise at 900 RPM at 60 miles per hour because of all those direct drive torque converters in each of the wheels. It was super, super low. So like the fuck you say, yeah, <laughs> we'd have to be popping this thing out over 60 months, but there's no wear on the motor It's very light. Like it, it didn't, it just doesn't cycle. Yeah, exactly. It never got like, it never hit 3000 RPM. It would never imagine of getting that high. Yeah. You no, know? everything crazy. was under two, 2000. Wow. Crazy car. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but it made 200 horsepower, which all right for 1948, crazy. Yeah. And 450 pounds of torque. Wait, what? Yeah. So it was like, uh, uh, the, the old, like, uh, the RX sevens. Yeah. Those, those, uh, rotary, rotary motors, engines, yeah. they make like 300 horsepower, but like one torque. <laughs> it was like the opposite, you know? Yeah. This was the exact opposite of that. It would just be, it was all torque. It was like a, wow, like, that's like a diesel, right? Like yeah. that's how diesels were. They're just all torque, you know? Yeah. So it's, yeah, crazy. It was just this monster and they were big. They were very heavy cars. Like, yeah, you know, I'm sure. Three tons or something, just like this massive car. Um. So, but all of these were like crazy, crazy advancements and it would basically be like putting like going to a showroom and buying a 1966 Beetle and then seeing a Tesla next to it. Like that's how different these cars were at the time frame. Yeah. You know? And so, I mean, that comes back to like, why would the big three want to kill the Tucker? You know, he put all of these things in what he was claiming was a standard production model. And so Chrysler, Ford, GM were like, what the hell are we supposed to do with this? Like, if this guy puts this car out as a production car, we have to catch up. Yeah, we've, we're fucked. Yeah, and in the in at the meantime, they're building these 100-horsepower gigantic V8s that just weren't doing anything, and it was the same motors basically from the Model T. They were just, like, making them bigger so they did more. 
Yeah. They weren't trying. There was no R&D at the time. Yeah. And Tucker forced them to do all that stuff. So his ideas around like the safety and performance and I mean, some of the other stuff we didn't even talk about the the safety features aside from the whole roll cages and all that stuff. He even had like these kind of fake crumple zones and like all these little things and like car dealerships couldn't, well, first of all, they couldn't even come up with it on their own because they're designing these cars by like group therapy where they're getting like 10 people in a room and trying to design these cars. Yeah. Whereas Tucker was doing his mad scientist shit, just like yeah. scribbling <laughs> in a notebook and he's like, make this happen. And like to his other people. And he had like a group of very loyal people who were working with him, you know, yeah. because he was Chris Pratt. He was extremely charismatic and he had, there's, there was a movie about him. You should watch it. It's an amazing movie. And uh, he had all these people who followed him and helped him. Uh, all of his ideas around safety and performance were like very welcomed by people returning from World War II, all these vets who wanted to buy a really great car. And the big three just, they weren't putting money into R&D. They didn't offer this. And if you look at the the um, timeline of all this stuff, cool cars like the Corvette was still six years away. Yeah. The, uh, the Mustang was 10 years off. The Camaro was 20 years away. Like there wasn't going to be a Camaro for 20 years, you know? Yeah. And so all of these quote unquote fun cars that, you know, you think of as like guys coming back from war wanted to drive. You know, you think about Vietnam, people come back from Vietnam, like they sold more Mustangs in 1969 than anything else. And that's when the Camaro was blossoming and all this stuff. Yeah. People were buying these cars because they wanted something nice. You know, they wanted a fun thing. Yeah. And the big three weren't offering that. So Tucker tried to give it to him. And they also, the big three, wanted to send a message to all of these kind of indie car makers who were popping up that there was no reason to try to come and compete because there wasn't a market. So these guys who wanted, like Tucker, to come in and build the cars that people wanted to buy just didn't have a chance. When you look at what Tucker offered everybody, you would think, hey, it's a no-brainer people want these cars yeah so why can't they just buy them and there were three major things that happened that essentially killed this entire operation okay first upon the premiere of the the completely innovative tucker 48 there was a guy named drew pearson who was one of the top newspaper columnists of his time he reported publicly wrote up in his column that the car was a complete fraud and a fake because it could not go backwards and he described it as going goose geese down the road. I have no idea what that means. Yeah. I'm like, the fuck is this? What the fuck does that mean? I can't even imagine how a car goes goose geese. I don't know goose what that means. Geese. Um, so, but anyways, he wrote a whole column about this and he was a really well-known columnist at the time. So everybody read it and we're like, what's Tucker doing? This is weird. What Drew Pearson didn't tell anyone was that the car that he witnessed do this was the very first prototype that they dragged out of the you know, construction facility Yeah, that they were just testing. It wasn't like, this wasn't like the car they were giving to people. Right. It wasn't this, a production model. This was the... Right. You know. It was a, it was a R&D thing that they were yeah. doing, you know, and he turned it out to like make it, he made it seem like all the cars came off like this. And this was a guy who was like a nationally known newspaper columnist. Yeah. So that, you know, obviously screwed him a little bit. And then... During all of this, Tucker was going to try to attain these two steel mills, steel mills that were shut down to provide raw materials for his cars. And 
when he was in the process of buying these, the War Asset Administration, under a shroud of questionable politics, uh, shut the whole thing process down. It wouldn't let him purchase these. Uh, this was run by these Michigan senators who were most likely bought and paid for by the big three. Uh, they turned all of it down, shut down his applications, wouldn't hear everything, and just closed his bids. So when he tried to buy a place to make these cars, the local politicians said no. They just wouldn't allow him to buy these things. Okay. I mean, that's not weird. Right. It's like, <laughs> yeah. And then so third... Tucker created this very kind of innovative finance program where he would raise money by selling like car accessories and parts before they were available. Yeah. So look at how the Tesla unveiled, you know, Elon put up a website and was like, buy these cars. I haven't even started making them yet. And he sold the cars out immediately. You know, everybody went and bought cyber trucks and, Tesla yeah. Model P's and all this stuff. And so everybody went and bought these things and it was fine. Hunky dory. Then, then yeah. Elon Musk took the money, opened a factory and started building the cars. Yeah. Well, when Tucker did this in 1947, uh, the uh, security commission cracked down on him and said that it was illegal and they ended up actually taking all these people to court, suing a bunch of them, uh, people were people were mad and they they actually people were asking for this kind of innovation because the wait lists that the big three were running you would say hey i want to buy a new chrysler and you would get on the wait list and then chrysler would suddenly be like oh sorry we sold that car to somebody else so tucker was saying put your money down and i'll guarantee you a spot yeah and then what happened was the um the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the U.S. Attorney at the time indicted a bunch of the company executives and arrested them all and and dragged them into a court and you know basically said you can't do this, this is illegal. And uh, even though eventually all the charges were dropped, the negative publicity essentially destroyed the company and their ability to raise money and halted the all of the production of the cars. And wow, yeah, and that's where we were left. They ended up, they built 51 of the cars. Like I said earlier, we know where all 51 of these cars are. A lot of them run. Uh, they're wow, restored. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, they're restored vehicles. People people take care of them. A bunch of them have been shipped overseas. They're in Australia, Europe. Uh, they're beloved by their owners. Uh, but yeah, as soon as the, uh, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission shut that down, that was the end of the line. And so he couldn't get warehouses to build factories the way he was going to raise money was killed and the media basically crapped all over not even production models and it just killed the entire dream of what he had so do we want to say whether or not we think this was some kind of conspiracy to crush so that's the question the right or do we want to talk about the other two first <laughs> um i mean i think we could discuss i fully 100 percent think that because of everything i know about what car companies were doing at the time i think that these senators and uh newspaper writers at the time were bought and sold by the big three and conspired to kill tucker preston's or preston tucker's dreams this is an easy leap they fucked this dude yeah you know and like Oh, I see Why wouldn't yeah. they have done it? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, 
I think it's pretty clear. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Of course they did it. Of course they <laughs> Of course they did it. They fucked this dude because his car was better. Yeah, it was a cool and car. They found, you know, stupid ways to, you know, yeah, get him done. I can just imagine like all of the execs from the three from the big three car companies like meeting up in a boardroom with their stupid mad men, you know, suits right. and cigars and like, and, like the Michigan senator. And like, what are we going to do to fuck up this? What's his name? Peggy. Yeah. What's this guy's name again? I don't <laughs> even remember. You know what I mean? And then just yeah. being like, let's 100%. figure out how to screw this. Who's this mad scientist upstart making this? Yeah. What's it called? You know what I mean? Like yeah. I could just see them being like, let's figure out a way to fuck this dude. Either that or them being like, here's what we're going to do. First, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, them coming up with this plan to just be like, this is gonna be so easy. This dude has no money, and we're huge. I and I think that's the case. Like, it's it's so easy for a dude who's in charge of Chrysler in 1948 to just say, sure. shut this guy down. Because think about Michigan in 1948 when cars were actually built in Detroit. Yeah. How much power the big three had over the senators of Michigan, you know? Yeah. Look at, look at how much power like in industry has over, over senators nowadays, you know? And when you, when you look at how they can hold that and wield that, I mean, imagine, imagine a Senator in Michigan who's just trying to do his job and like make good for people. And then all of a sudden Chrysler's like, well, maybe we'll move to Tennessee you're going to do whatever that guy wants because that's 20,000 jobs. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they screwed, I think they screwed Preston Ducker and I think it's pretty obvious. Like it's, you know, and when you, when you watch the movie, it's, they don't even try to pull punches. Who's in the movie? Like what's the, uh, what the name of this phantom movie is. Yeah. The movie's just called Tucker. And Jeff Bridges plays Tucker, who he is amazing in the role. It's directed by Francis Ford Coppola. So, I love Jeff Bridges too. Yeah. I mean, Francis Ford Coppola is a, a genius, you know? And so some of the other people in the movie, you know, Martin Landau, Dean Stockwell, like these are, these are very, you know, big names. Movie came out in 1988 and it really, really digs into what happened around the entire securities exchange commission. And one of the kind of breakout people in the entire movie is Christian Slater, who plays Preston Tucker's kid. I like Christian Slater too. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really okay. You should watch the movie. It's really good. So in the movie, they actually have all the original Tuckers. They bring a bunch of them together to film. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's. It's really cool. But like they break down the trials where he gets screwed by the by the security commission. They put all that together. Yeah. And the end of the movie, you're just like, why do I even bother working? You know, <laughs> like you're so depressed at the end of the movie. There's no hope. Yeah. You know, it's just like, oh, uh, maybe I won't it. watch it. Yeah. It's, it's, you gotta, no, be it's, on, it sounds cool. Maybe yeah. I'll check it out. It's not, it, if it's on, I don't know. I'll have to look and see if it's on like a streaming. Site it's probably not. Probably like not. it's, a, right. the, I might be able to find a DVD for you somewhere. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that is Preston Tucker, one of my favorite kind of car history stories. I love the guy. I think I think he's one of the coolest guys, you know, outside of somebody like Lee Iacocca. I think he's like one of the coolest car dudes that has really done stuff. You know? Yeah. 
I mean, at the very least, you know, it's it's a cool story about a cool yeah, car. Yeah, it is. And, yeah. you know, I, I think he's on the level with somebody like Enzo Ferrari and, like, these really, you know, different people. And I think he designed something that should have been revolutionary. You know, if if the Tucker 48 continued and we had that as a standard production car, we would basically be driving supercars today. I mean, we'd innovation. have flying cars. And even if they didn't fly, they would at least be safer. I mean, imagine if we had the safety we have today innovated in 1948. It would be ground groundbreaking. It would be insane. Yeah, we'd have yeah. all kinds of really cool shit now. I would hope so. So speaking of really cool stuff, we're going to drop into number two really fast. All right. And this one is something I saw on a... TV channel report on YouTube one day that I was kind of streaming through and looking at some stuff. And uh, there's a guy named Stanley Meyer who in a news report on an Ohio TV station, which it's on YouTube. If you look it up, you can find it. Uh, It was up in the 1990s. Stanley Meyer drug a, again, dune buggy, which I'm very fond of, uh, (laughs) dragged a dune buggy out of his garage and said that he was able to drive this dune buggy from Los Angeles to New York using only 22 gallons of water and no gasoline, which seems surprising, is very surprising. Yeah. So he made this claim, and uh, he said what he did was he replaced the spark plugs with custom injectors that he built, that would introduce a hydrogen oxygen mixture into the engine cylinders and boom, hydrogen power. It was entirely water. Mm, that seems like a severe oversimplification. How much do you know about spark plugs? Like how they work? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, enough <laughs> to understand how they work. I know yeah. how they spark. I mean, I mean, that's where I'm at. I mean, I know spark plugs spark. I don't think that you can replace spark plugs with a custom injector that sprays water. No. And that turns a normal car motor into a hydrogen fuel cell plant. No. Because you can make, so you can actually, there's tons of YouTube videos and instruction manuals and all kind of crap about how to convert existing engines into hydrogen engines and how you do it and how you make the the there's like this container that you have to make out of different size water bottles with like you take like copper wire and wrap it around potato or some shit no there's this fuel cell cell there's this fuel cell that you have to home make that takes water and introduces a chemical reaction where you like run electricity through it and stuff like that and it separates the oxygen molecules and the hydrogen molecules, and then you collect those hydrogen molecules, pump them into the engine. Seems complicated. It is complicated. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, it seems complicated, but it's really not that complicated. But that is how you would have to design a hydrogen-powered engine. Well, why don't car companies do that? I mean, they could. That's right. the whole thing. Uh, like a legitimate hydrogen-powered engine has been... yeah. You know, and that's the question where we're they're out here. there. It's in yeah. like you remember at the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when they take the Ark and they put it in that crate and then they oh, take yeah. it to the giant warehouse that's just full yeah. of shit. The hydrogen engine is sitting in a crate in that super secret <laughs> warehouse somewhere, 
and they just don't right want to next release to the it. And yeah, uh, they they probably are sitting right next to each other. <laughs> well, the Ark is in Ethiopia. I'll have you know that it's not in a warehouse. No, no. Okay, we'll go into that one day. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, but yeah, like. You know, it's probably sitting in a yeah. crate in some storehouse where underground warehouse somewhere or something. Well, that's shit. where they say that Stanley Myers water fuel cell is. Sure. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe. I yeah. mean, you know, this guy could have just been like, I'm not going to go into the science. He could have been ahead of the curve of how this works. And been like, all I did was this. And really, he was like, I'm a mad scientist. I'm not going to tell you idiots how this shit works. Right. You know, like, I don't know. Yeah. So he kind of went into it a little bit and some of it above my understanding. But he said, uh, basically, uh, the water subjected to an electrical resonance that disassociated it into the basic atomic makeup. And those are just words. Like, I don't know what that means. That's exactly what I was just talking about, where right. you create this reaction that exactly, separates yeah. the hydrogen and oxygen molecules from each other. Right. So the water fuel cell splits water into hydrogen and oxygen gas, which would then be combusted back into water vapor in a conventional internal combustion engine to produce net energy, which yeah, those are words in an order. And it seems like it would do something. Water, even as a car guy, like I'm like, I guess that could make something move. Yeah, you have the water molecule, you separated it into the two hydrogens and the one oxygen. The one oxygen gets, you know, right, whisked away. That's also how you can make the hydrogen hydrogen bombs. Yeah, the hydrogen gets pumped into the engine and then that's burned to create the explosion that you need to drive the car. Right. So, you know, maybe, maybe something's there. Who knows? But like, yeah. So after he was on TV, uh, uh, Meyer's neighbors came forward and reported limousines pulling up to his house all the time. And, you know, this is very uh, early 90s. Okay. Men with turbans getting out of the limousines. Sure. Right. Like, she- right. like sheiks, like, you know, these are, they're obviously involved in the oil industry. Yeah. And, uh, and then later they described military vehicles surrounding his house. And coming in and talking to him. Okay. So they think you're making a bomb. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I don't so know. Myers told a documentary filmmaker who came around to ask him about the 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 fuel cell. He said, Many times over the last decade I've been offered enormous amounts of money simply to sell out or sit on it. The Arabs have offered me a total of a billion dollars total to simply sit on it and do nothing with my motor. Would you take it? Would I take a billion dollars? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously. How much how much does a billion dollars translate to 50 years ago? 70 years ago. Like 10 billion dollars. I don't know. Would you like, take that to hide your super secret hydrogen engine? Yeah, absolutely. Like 10, ten are you kidding? 10 billion dollars? <laughs> like like what, what are you even saying right now? Like would like would you take an endless amount of money to not do something? Sure. Yep. Like 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 I care about. I just like go the, live on a beach somewhere. Fuck my engine. I'm out. <laughs> dude, dude, I would beat the ha- I would beat the engine to death with a sledgehammer in front of a guy with a turban, quote unquote. Yeah. For a like a bill like a billion now. I don't even need the inflation. You know how much a billion dollars is? You could put. I mean, yeah, a, I know how much a billion. You could put half a billion dollars into a savings account and live like the interest alone would be like a hundred thousand dollars a month. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, same. And you want to build like a hydro? Who gives a shit about a hydrogen <laughs> engine when you have a billion dollars? I don't know. Not me. 
1996, these two investors who uh, Meyer had sold the rights of distribution to for the future Wait, cars. what year? 1996. 1996. 96. Okay, okay. Yeah, jumping forward. Um, so basically, he had these two investors that he was going to sell the rights to. They sued him. And uh, there was this whole big court case. The doom buggy was due to be examined by Michael Lofton, professor of electrical engineering at Queen Mary University of London and fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering. So smart guy, I guess. Some egghead. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, But anyways, Meyer said that, uh, or Professor Lofton said that Myers made a quote-unquote lame excuse as to why he was not able to examine the car. Uh, The judge got really mad. Uh, forced all these different things and basically declared that three expert witnesses from the government had to examine the water fuel cell. Now, if you go back and actually look at the court cases, they don't name who these guys are. They're just labeled as three expert examiners, which is weird. Yeah, that is weird. Because the court documents go very in-depth into like the first guy, but they don't mention at all who these other three people are. Okay. So we're going to send these yeah, black suit men to right. your house to examine your engine, which I, I don't know. Maybe they just, you know, who knows who they were, but it's mm-hmm. uh, um, the three unnamed expert witnesses decided together in conjunction and submitted one report saying that there was nothing revolutionary about this cell at all and that it was simply using conventional electrolysis. The court found Meyer had committed gross and egregious fraud and ordered him to uh, pay $25,000 to the investors. A little while later, about 18 months later, uh, he was still shopping this motor around and talking to people. And he claims during the time that he was shooting down a lot of people who wanted to use his motor for different purposes. And then one day, he's in a Grove City, Ohio cracker barrel on March 20th, 1998, with two Belgian investors. And uh, Meyer said that his invention could do what physicists say is impossible, turn water into hydrogen, fuel efficiently enough to drive his dune buggy cross-country, 20 gallons from the tap. And while he was explaining all this, he took a sip of cranberry juice, grabbed his neck, bolted out of the door, dropped to his knees, and began vomiting violently while having a seizure. His brother, oh, uh, Stefan Meyer, ran outside and started shaking him and asking him what was wrong. And Meyer, the inventor of the motor, grabbed his brother and said, they poisoned me, they poisoned me. And that was the last thing he said. Dang. All Meyer, right. Yeah, Meyer's death was investigated for three months before the coroner eventually determined that he died of a cerebral aneurysm. Uh, so his body sat in a morgue for three months. The only detectable drugs in his system, according to that same um, coroner, were the pain reliever lidocaine and phenotoin, which is used to treat seizures, uh, which nobody knew he was on. Definitely not ryacin. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, So Meyer's brother continues to insist that his brother was murdered uh, because of his invention, because of his invention and how it poses an incalculable threat to billions of oil industry dollars and untold fortunes, and he insists that his his brother never sold out. So, 
The um, the inventor before his death warded, claims that he warded off pressure from numerous numerous overseas investors and visitors, and uh, weathered these ongoing government spying operations. He he claimed constantly that he was under surveillance. The uh, the two investors who dined with the uh, with the brothers on that fateful day that he died refused to ever speak uh, with investigators about what happened at that Ohio Cracker Barrel. And they were never interviewed on record by local police or asked to give a statement. Okay. Of course they weren't. The kind of big kind of knife twist in the stomach is that they they now claim that all of Meyer's patents, uh, patents appear in Google's patent catalog and are available for anyone to look at. And uh, people say that they've been thoroughly examined and that no company or entity has ever incorporated his patents into any of their current cards. So obviously anything he may have designed or applied for a patent for is false. But there are lots and lots of questions left around what Myers did not patent. He was known to distrust investors and the government and kept a lot, of, a lot to himself, including access to his water fuel self-fitted doom buggy which went missing at the time of his death. Mike, there's like so many just silly coincidences on this one. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah. I mean, and it could be nothing. I mean, because what we know about modern technology around fuel cells, water fuel cells, and this is all 1996, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's weird. Maybe, maybe. Maybe he came up with something like that Keanu Reeves movie chain reaction. Oh yeah. Who knows? Very possibly. It's yeah. possible. It's weird. It's definitely weird. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. This one's kind of, this one's kind of hard to tell. I don't know. I just don't have a definitive feeling about this one. There's a part of me that's almost just wants to be like, yeah, there yeah. is definitely a hydrogen engine and they definitely, I feel the same guy. way. Yeah. But I also feel like it's complete BS. Like yeah. I feel like it's there's the also, brother pushing stuff and trying yeah. to sell the legacy and there's a lot yeah. there. Yeah. Like what he was just like making this shit in his yeah. fucking garage out of like plastic buckets and shit. Like, right. I don't know. You <laughs> know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. On that note, let's, let's talk about something that's a little more clear in cut. your face. And okay. Clear cut. Okay. Okay. What do you know about streetcars, public transportation? I know that we have some that drive around downtown Raleigh, but yeah, they're not there electric. Yeah, there is a little bit. They yeah. look like streetcars. They do. They're kind of not. Are they trucks? Are they just truck buses? Yeah, basically. I don't really. I haven't really seen sort them close of. up. I mean, it looks like a vintage streetcar, but it's like has rubber wheels and shit. It's not like on tracks and there's no yeah. electricity. And Raleigh has tracks. We have all the tracks in the downtown. They've been covered over and paved over and stuff, but yeah. Raleigh originally had streetcars. Did it? Oh, yeah. Oh, like, I didn't. I've, uh, I've lived here forever. I didn't know that. Yeah, I've seen. If you go to the city of Raleigh Museum, which was open before COVID, yeah. there's a little museum that specifically talks about downtown. And one of the parts is they have like a lot of stuff about streetcars, which is kind of interesting. Okay, that's cool. Um, so the the question is, not even the question, the flat-out statement is General Motors flat-out killed the electric streetcar in America. Okay. What happened was in the early 1900s, there was a rise of streetcars where streetcars powered by electricity serve people in towns and cities throughout the United States. By 1930, 
in basically every major city in the United States, use of electric streetcar was outpacing use of cars. People Interesting. Were, exactly. People were jumping on streetcars a lot faster than driving. People were enjoying them. Um, unlike the uh, the buses that eventually replaced them, streetcars emitted zero exhaust fumes. They were much quieter, had much smoother rides because of the tracks. They were way more durable. They were easier to fix. Just all over, they offered a lot more uh, benefits than buses and yeah. metros. I know? mean, I hate the bus. The bus is awful. It's horrible. Yeah. I so don't think I there's any s- argument for the bus. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely see myself taking public transit if it was like pleasant. Usable. You know what I mean? And I'm not a huge like subway or railway fan either. Yeah. You know what I mean? But if it was like something kind of chill, you know what I mean? Yeah. When I lived in DC, I was very much about the metro. Um, I lived. Yeah. I lived two blocks from the metro and I worked two blocks from the metro. So it made sense. Yeah. I've ridden on the L in Chicago. Yeah. A, t- a million times. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, I don't hate the L. Um, I don't like it either. You know what I mean? Right. I definitely liked the Metro in DC a lot less than yeah. the L. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Every city, they're a little different. Like New York's kind of gross. <laughs> like Chicago's I could, a little I could imagine. Yeah. I could imagine. Yeah. So anyways, uh, from 1900 to the 30s, streetcars were exploding and every city was building them up, loving them. They were all the riders. They were, they were constantly revered as a great way to get around the cities. Um, but by 1955, almost all of the streetcars in the country, the electric streetcars had completely vanished. And in urban centers where they even made complete 100% sense, they were all gone. Looking at it today, public transportation is a $74 billion industry that employs more than 436,000 people uh, just in the United States. According to government data today, 10% of America takes public transportation daily as needed. Um, basically, I mean, that's what they rely on. Yeah. In, uh, in 2019, Americans took 9.9 billion trips on public transportation. 34 million times each weekday, people board public transportation. And since 1995, public transportation ridership has increased by 28%, a growth rate higher than 23% increase in the population. So people are taking to public transportation faster than the population is increasing in cities. Okay. So Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because I guess my question would be why and is it, you know, more people can't afford cars like or yeah are just more people living in these uh super urban areas urban zones yeah, yeah yeah yes i mean that's all like part of it and millennials consider public transportation as the best option for digital socialization and among the best for connecting with communities um so millennials are all in on public transportation so the future is definitely moving that that direction. They rated higher than any other age group previously and more millennials than ever before are opting out of driving and Gen Z is even increasing on that. Interesting. So people are driving less and less um as you see like people in gen, like Gen Zers are on average getting their license I think it's like 18 months later than than the generation before them. Interesting. So people aren't 
they're not they don't want to drive and a lot of these people live in the suburbs like these kids live in the suburbs so they're they're like ending up with buses so anyways what happened to these like low cost electric streetcars that the cities all love it's easy to say people just wanted their cars and to drive them and that americans are rugged individualists that's all easy to say but the the facts play out a little different uh in 1974 bradford snell who was uh, an associate counsel for the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Antitrust and Monopolies, distributed a report titled American Ground Transport, a Proposal for Restructuring the Automobile, Truck, Bus, and Rail Industries. And that was in in February 26, 1974. And so his report looked at the FBI and DOJ, Department of Justice Documents, and tons of reports off the and completely off the record interviews with GM employees. The the report in total had over 500 citations, was about 100 pages long, and kind of caused a big uproar at the time. It starts by saying, this is a study of the social consequences of a monopoly. It shows that excessive economic concentration can restructure society for corporate ends. This is not a study of malevolent or rapacious executives. Snell wrote in the report, as he literally went on to describe a bunch of malevolent and rapacious executives' actions. The study dove deep into how monopolies can just completely wreck public transportation in very, very serious ways. By the mid-20s, Snell argued, General Motors and other auto companies had run out of new buyers for their cars, again, going back to like what was happening with Tucker, where they weren't innovating, they weren't doing cool new things, and so people weren't looking to buy these cars. They didn't care. Right. So GM started saying, like, F the cars. Let's go find other ways to sell things. So their main solution focused on uh, uh, getting rid of the electric-powered streetcars and instituting a different kind of system. So in 1932, GM began buying streetcar systems like crazy. They were just going out and purchasing them in every urban center in the country, just buying them up left and right. And they were replacing all. They were ripping up the streetcars, tearing up the tracks, and they were replacing them with buses built by GM. Finally, uh, it sold the bus companies. They sold the bus companies to private transit systems and forced them to only buy GM buses to replace the ones that they started with. So they were like killing these companies and then signing contracts with them, forcing them to only purchase GM products in the future. Wow. Yeah, that's nuts. So streetcars in Kalamazoo, Saginaw, Michigan, Springfield, Ohio, they were the first to go and started really receiving criticism from the locals. By 1936, Snell writes, GM partnered with the Omnibus Corp uh, in engineering the tremendous conversion of New York City's electric streetcar system to all GM buses. The massive project took only 18 months. Before this, the trolleys in New York were the world's largest streetcar network. So GM, in 18 months, tore down the world's largest streetcar network and put up all buses across the board. After that success, GM decided the party was just starting. And so in 1936, GM and Greyhound executives created the National City Line Inc., a holding company that acted merely as a front for GM's next big schemes. During the following 14 years, General Motors, together with Standard Oil of California, Firestone Tire, and two other suppliers of bike pro- of bus products, 
contributed more than $9 million to this holding company for the purpose of converting electric transit systems in 16 states into GM buses. Once everything was converted, they had to buy buses, tires, lubricants, and fuels only from companies funded and controlled by National City Lines slash General Motors. They basically went on to create these subsidiaries called Pacific City Line and American City Lines to kind of spread everything out so it didn't seem like a monopoly. And together, the three companies ended up destroying the Pacific Electric Railway, the electric power, which, which held the electric-powered systems for metropolitan Los Angeles. They also wiped out the Los Angeles Railway, the city streetcar system, which held over 3,000 rail cars and hundreds of miles of track, all went into the scrap heap in a few months. By 1949, General Motors had been involved in the replacement of more than 100 electric transit systems with GM buses in 45 different cities. And according to Snell, General Motors didn't care if they worked at all. They just wanted them replaced. They would buy them, shut them down, scrap them, and then try to push GM buses or GM cars into the area. It all came to a head in April 9th, 1947, when U.S. Attorney General Tom C. Clark presented indictments to nine companies and seven corporate executives for violating the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, which was basically an act that was put into place to fight things like big sugar, big oil, the railroads. They were the ones that came in and broke up all those monopolies. Got it. The corporations included National City Lines, American City Lines, Pacific City Lines, Standard Oil Company of California, Federal Engineering Corporation, Phillips Petroleum Company, General Motors, Firestone, uh, and Mack Manufacturing. And although it may be greedy and immoral, it's not against the law to buy trolley systems, convert them to buses, and then sell or operate them or do whatever they were doing. Um, But it is against the law for this group of companies to buy and sell transit systems, employing sales contracts that force new owners to purchase buses, tires, lubricants, and fuels from only their specified companies. Essentially, what they outlined was it's not illegal to buy these things and trash them, but it is illegal to force them to purchase all the pieces. Right. Snell continued to outline in his report that in 1922, According to GM's own files, which he got, Alfred P. Sloan Jr., the president of General Motors, established a special unit within the corporation which was charged with, among other things, the task of replacing America's electric railways with cars, trucks, and buses. They exchanged, you know, 1922 version emails, memos, of talking about how they were going to do this, and they were caught. According to U.S. Department of Justice documents, Officials at GM visited banks used by railways in Philadelphia, Dallas, Kansas City, and many other locations and offered them millions of dollars in additional deposits, persuading their rail clients to convert over to motor vehicles. And where those rail systems were publicly owned and could not be bought, GM bought their officials instead and, according to FBI files, provided complimentary Cadillacs to those who would convert their local streetcars into buses. You know, this is literally a trade conspiracy that violates the Sherman Antitrust Act. They took it to court, played it out. There was a jury. There was a guilty conviction. So what happened with that? And yeah, tr- I'm like waiting for them to get fucked up. Yeah, but, I they mean, should, right? GM is still a thing. So yeah, what happened? 
So in the 1949 trial, a federal jury returned a guilty verdict against GM and all of their cohorts. Literally all of them were deemed to be guilty. The court nice. fined <laughs> Exactly. The court fined General Motors $5,000. What, 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 what? Yeah. $5,000. $5,000 in 1949, which is like 25 grand now. That's it? Yeah. So that was oh the fine God. they faced. They also find the mastermind, H.C. Grossman, who was currently, well, at the time, was the treasurer of General Motors. They find him $1. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, that's what happened. And um, (laughs) despite its criminal conviction, Snell wrote in his report, General Motors continued to acquire and dieselize electric transit properties through September of 1955. By then... 88% 88% of the nation's electric streetcar network had been eliminated and trashed into the scrap heap as General Motors replaced them with buses. General Motors flat out ignored all court orders and consequences of the cases that they lost. In 1955, they shifted directions and refocused on passenger cars, but many cities are still just now getting around to rebuilding their public transit systems. Wow. Well, the last thing that you said, cities are just now getting around to rebuilding their transit systems. Like that is a thing that has absolutely skewed my view on public transit, you know, because here in Raleigh, I mean, yeah. all we have is buses and yeah. they are trash. They're yeah, you can't horrible. really get around on it. The first time I ever had a really good experience with public transit here in this area, because um, like I like I said, I'd ridden on the metro before i've been on the l like i've done you know public transit and stuff before but the first time that i had a really good experience with public transit here is when i was at nc state there's a group of uh, students who went uh to the engineering school and they designed a system called called transloc oh cool and it was the first ever gps locator system for buses that uh, you could see from your phone. That's awesome. Yeah, and so um, the NC State school buses were the um, you know, guinea pigs for testing cool. out and making this Transloc system work. I love that. That's and awesome. so now, like Transloc's all over. Yeah, you know, I mean, they have it on trains, they have it on buses, they have it on subway. Like, you know, and basically anywhere you are in the country that has public transit, where you can go onto an app and be like. You know, and it'll tell you, you know, your location and show you on a map how long it's going to be till the next bus gets to you. Cool. That system was designed by Transit. That's amazing. Which yeah. is, you know, and so and we like, need more of that. I, you know, this was, I don't know, I started going to state in 2006. So, um, you know, in 2006, I could hop on my super crappy oh, wow. phone and, or actually, I didn't even have a phone that could access the internet at the time. I had to be inside the building. Oh, and then you had to go run and, out. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, I had to be inside the building, logged onto a computer, looking at the Transloc website. <laughs> and then I'd be like, all right, the bus is going to be here in 32 seconds. Everybody log <laughs> off. And then we'd like book. That's awesome. Out to the, you know, wherever. And then we'd get there like right as the bus was pulling up and stuff. But, That's super cool. But yeah, I mean, public transit sucks. It does. It's I mean, super yeah. terrible. And, I mean, we kind of now know why. Like Charlotte, which is the largest city in North Carolina, even though it's not the capital, has a light rail system. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Raleigh's getting big quick. But um, it's not getting as big as Charlotte is. No. 
And so a number of years ago, they had talked about trying to put a light rail system in here. And right. to get a light rail system, you have to get like federal government it's money. It's a big deal. Or, yeah. or what, it's like some huge deal. And whoever it was that was going to uh, more or less make that decision to say Raleigh could or could not do a light rail system basically was like, uh, your bus is blow. <laughs> like, what makes you think we're going to give you money to buy light rail? Like, right. Literally fuck off. Yeah. And so, I mean. Which, fair. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> fair. You know, I mean, it like. But um, it has to start somewhere. Yeah, but it. I mean, it ain't going to start here. No. Our public transit sucks. It it's does. horrible. But even in big cities, it sucks. Like, even in places, like, I've been to San Francisco. I've ridden on the electric streetcars. They still kind of suck. You know? Really? They're cool. Yeah, it's but a, are they better than the bus? They're way better than the bus. First of all, they're open air, which helps a lot. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, But, yeah, it's they're better than the bus because you can just hop on, hop off, do your thing. Oh, that's cool. You know? And so, like... Yeah, that's cooler. But like, you know, it's way better walking, like living in a little centralized neighborhood where you can walk to things. That's way cooler. You know? Yeah. I hadn't thought about that too. Like if there was just like a little grocery store down the end of my street here where how I could cool walk that, down like the, to the end and like yeah, how cool get the stuff be? I need. Oh, yeah. I'd absolutely would do that. Yeah. I mean, and that's how it was when, when I lived in Los Angeles, I lived in a little neighborhood called Culver City. And you didn't even have to go anywhere. No, I, I like my wife's job was three blocks away. I worked a little bit further than that. Like, you know, we could walk, we could do our thing. Bicycle cool. maybe. Yeah. It was I, probably, I bike to work I'll, too close. Even for a bike, you just, it'd be easier to just walk. Yeah. I mean, it really depends on where you want to lock your bike up, but yeah, sure. for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, but here, like there's, there's no way to take public transportation places. It doesn't, I mean, there is, but it it's not as good as it, yeah. Could be. You yeah. Know, it's difficult. Yeah. So from like a driving perspective, so I live like in a very weird mid southwest part of Raleigh. Yeah, absolutely. My parents live literally a 15 minute direct shot straight up north from here. Like okay. literally you come out the end of this road here, you turn left, you go to the end, you turn right and it's a straight shot for like okay. nine miles. It uh, To get from there to here on the bus, it would take... Like four uh, and a half yeah. hours. Yeah, absolutely. It's fucking stupid. To get to my house from here, it would take it would take several hours. Yeah, it's like, and I could drive here in six minutes. Yeah, it's know? like six buses in four hours. Right, right. It's really and horrible. I would have to walk a, a lot of it. Yeah, and you'd have to walk like I don't have any idea where the closest bus stop is here. Like Same. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. It's really not great. So I think on top of General Motors, General Fuckery. And like, <laughs> like killing things, which yeah. is pretty obviously laid out. I yeah. think, yes, they absolutely do, did do those things. But I think also public transportation is just very complicated. Cities are big and spread out and it's hard. Yeah. It's not easy to make that. Yeah. But like having streetcars, like imagine if streetcars had stayed a thing. Right. That's like what I'm saying. What is, other cool shit could we have now? Well, public this, transit. Think about way. the streetcars if they would have been a thing, being able to turn and, and like do different things and get off different paths. And, you know, it could have been a whole different world. Maybe know? we'd have hover streetcars. How dope would that be? Like, yeah. Hella streetcars that like fly above. Yeah. Where instead of them like riding on tracks, they would have like these giant magnets on the bottom. And then, <laughs> and then on the ground would be like this, I don't know. 
oh, oh, no, no, no. The ground would be metal and then <laughs> the streetcar would have these like like super magnets on it and it so just then, flip. and it would just float, yeah. And it charged your phone while you were riding? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know, why not? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's all I've got on the car spiracies. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this one seems pretty straightforward. They absolutely did it. They got caught by the government. The right. government gave them less than a slap on the wrist. Uh yeah. They were like, huh, just, you know, I don't know. Go in the back, though. Yeah. <laughs> They'll, whatever you got in your wallet, it's cool. Yeah. Just wrap this up. We're not going to, we're not going to yeah. actually do anything about this. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, that changed the face of public transit. Like, right. I don't know. That to me is just a very clear cut and indicative of example of how, you know, monopolies throughout, you know, wherever, anywhere. I was going to say in the United States, but I mean, I'm sure this uh, everywhere, happens yeah. all over. Yeah. Uh, you know, they think, decide they want to do a thing to their benefit and then it just changes the face of history or whatever. I, yeah. In a way that's like super sucks. Like it's sure it was good for them and I'm sure they made a bunch of money in GM stuff or whatever, but yeah. like. I think it's just more examples of the rich screwing the poor. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that it necessarily screws the poor because the poor still had the access to public transit. Um, yeah. I mean, buses probably weren't free. Right. Where streetcars well, street were, were free. Yeah. You know, but it's just these greedy ass cor- corporate types. And I don't mean like any corporation, but like yeah. these like, you know, mega corporations. Yeah. Like yeah. GM. It's a problem. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> know for sure. Because it's like, I imagine, like, I think in my head, like, when's the last time I saw, like, a super corporate greed type situation happen? And it was, like, last year or the year before. There was this huge coal ash spill here, the Duke Energy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know that I know that they ever even cleaned it up. I never heard a conclusion to that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, and they basically were like, that. oops, coal yeah. ash spill are bad. And then, like, like nothing COVID happened. Came in and yeah. Everybody just kind of stopped talking about it. Yeah. I don't know. I would be really, I need to go back and do some research because you can't quote me on that nothing happened. Yeah. I mean, but I'm not. We I'm never not. heard anything about it because immediately after that happened, there was this huge ad campaign that Duke Energy ran right. where they were basically like, we're the clean life company and we're going to keep your neighborhood clean. And then really there's this like whole area over here where this like coal ash situation is destroying the environment. And they're like, we're the clean energy company. I'm like, you're full of shit. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know. Yeah. And that kind of sums things up. Yep. (laughs) Well, (laughs) anyways, that's it for today, guys. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Uh, We will see you again next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Brew Luminati. Our intro and outro music is written by Dungeness. Want to learn more about the topics we cover and who we are? Join us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Luminati Podcast for behind the scenes content and updates. Do you have mystical powers of insight or just questions, suggestions, and feedback? reach out to us at thebrewluminati at gmail.com. Are you ready to immerse yourself into the inner circle? Visit patreon.com slash brewluminati podcast. For the same price as a cup of coffee or sandwich you won't remember, you know, because of mind control, 
You can join the Brewluminati and lift the veil on the true mysteries of the universe. Your membership to the Conclave unlocks access to our secret Discord server, bonus Patreon-only content, behind-the-scenes talks, and much more. Every dollar spent not only helps us reveal the truths of the world, but also frees us to make the show better, weirder, and allows us to go deeper and deeper into the void while funding our next beer run. When we're not talking conspiracies and beer, we're passionate about saving the forgotten puppies and kitties of the world. 10% of every dollar you donate goes directly to the Best Friend Pet Adoption Agency. They are a local 501c3 all-breed, all-foster cat and dog rescue that will save the life of a pet who never had a chance. Keep an eye out because we'll be posting pictures of the lives our listeners save. For more information on Best Friend Pet Adoption, head over to bfpa.org. Join us again next week for another episode of Brew Luminati. We know you will, because again, mind control is real. Mind control is real.